0: Podcast. I'm your host Miles Irving, and the World Wild Podcast is sponsored by Forager Limited and the Wild Box. And I'd like to say a little bit more about the Wild Box. Um, it's it's a project we started with a view to fulfilling some of the well the main objective really of the both the World Wild Podcast and the broader um, World Wild project. And that objective is to reconnect people with landscapes through the instrument of um, wild plants and wild food. Um, So the wild box consists of seven ingredients which we send out every week. Um, So in that sense it's a bit like a subscription box, sort of veg box scheme. But there's more to it than that because we also supply a lot of detailed information. We send out notes on each of the ingredients that are in the box every week and recipes that enable you to use up everything that's in there and also what we call um, a word from the wild every week, which is uh, just some thoughts designed to inspire people on their wild food journey. So do have a look on the Forager website um, and explore the wild box if that's something that's of interest to you. So now I want to introduce this week's guest before we get to the actual conversation. um, And just say a little bit about Monica Wild, who is this week's guest, and um, also a, a very good friend of mine. So Monica is what she will explain in more detail um, later on. She is a research herbalist um, and also a forager. So her main interest with regards to herbalism is certainly the, the native plants, um, as well as mushrooms and seaweeds and so on, uh, which can be used to heal and and even um, as preventative medicine, so she's spent a lot of her time looking into that area, um, and I think the really strong thing um, that she manages to do is she sort of straddles the the traditional view um, of you know traditions of herbal medicine and that kind of worldview, which is very much sort of immersed in landscapes and very kind of uh, intuitive, um, alongside. Uh, a sort of rigorous scientific um, a, approach, which which engages with, and as Monica will explain, also um, helps to generate the scientific knowledge uh, through analysis of plants and testing them out, and so on. Which means that there there's um, a basis for the traditional use of plants, which Monica is very much engaged in um, encouraging. She is also the owner of Napier's Herbalist, which practices um, both selling herbal medicines to the public and uh, giving giving free advice on on how they can be used. Um, so she's very much engaged in, in that practical level. Um, so finding that meeting point between the uh, traditional practice of herbal medicine and scientific insights which can provide um, an evidence base for the efficacy of those treatments. Um, and I just think that's a, that's a, that's a great combination, and perhaps not everybody manages to straddle both of those fields, um, you know, the, the rational scientific inquiry, along with um, traditional knowledge and and, um, and and an intuitive engagement with plants. Uh, so, you know, with that in mind, I've I've been the beneficiary of, of a lot of um, insights which have taken me a lot deeper into my walk with plants. Um, uh, I'll never forget learning with Monica um, that the simple dock plant, or several species of dock that we have really, um, but all of those docks have a kind of gel-like substance. When you unwrap the um, unopened um, leaf buds at the base of the plant, you find this gel, which Monica told me is basically our native aloe vera. Um, And that's something I've missed all of these years, you know, you're aware of the fact that your fingers have got a bit slimy when you're you're collecting dock. Little did I know that this is actually an amazing healing substance and um, also I suspect the truth thing uh, behind everybody's habit of using a dock leaf to soothe a a nettle sting. Just just try finding that gel next time you get stung by a nettle and you'll see that it really does soothe you in a way that I've never found the leaf did. Okay, um, and then the other thing to say is that Monica um, started her life in Kenya and I think her experience there with um, the land in Kenya um, is is quite extraordinary. We managed to miss a little piece that that, uh, she said when we weren't recording, Um, but I'll, I'll relate it now. She said that in Kenya, you see the plants coming up the day before the rain. It's just extraordinary. So plants obviously also have something that we um, can't explain scientifically in terms of how they know things about their landscape and their surroundings. These seedlings crop up, um, pop up, when there's not a drop of rain fall, fallen yet, but they know it's coming and they uh, they get ready for the rain before it comes. Um, okay, so without further ado, we'll get on to the conversation with Monica Wilde on this week's podcast. <laughs> I'd like to welcome this week's guest, which is Monica Wild, and she is a forager and research herbalist, and also one of the founding members of the Association of Foragers, which we'll say a little bit about um, perhaps a bit later on. So, hello, Monica. Hi, Miles. So, um, this is a first for us. We're actually doing a, a podcast in person. Monica's come down to record with us here in Kent, which is um, fun and um, a bit more homely. Um and in a little while, we're going to go out for a walk, so there'll be some footage of us actually seeing things and tasting things, which is which is going to be fun. Um, but yeah, say a little bit about what you do, Monica. What does what does being a research herbalist look like? Being a research herbalist is interesting.
1: Um, I think, first and foremost, I'm a, just somebody who has an absolute passion for plants and fungi, and um, so I try and spend as much time as I can being involved with them.
0: But that's mostly wild plants and fungi, or most, do you, yes, you turn the water for cultivation of edible plants? Little, I do a little bit of cultivation, mm. mainly
1: so that I have a supply of green vegetables in the summer. Okay. You know, when all the plants are starting to flower in the summer, there's quite often less tasty veg about. So just to make sure that there's some veg to eat in the summer, you know, I grow a little bit as well. But most of I've got four acres up in Scotland. And most of it is pretty wild. It's what I'd call managed or a shepherded environment.
0: Yeah. Um, rather. Than or tending fossils. the wild, as the as the uh, as the book has it. Is
1: yeah. Yeah. In fact, it's what um, people have been doing all along. I recently read um, um, Lucas's um, most recent paper. Did some research. On Lucas. Thoughts.
0: Lucas. Lucas. Yes. The, the Polish ethnobotanist and perisher. forager.
1: And he recently published, um, was co author in a paper that was published at the end of last year on foraging in the northwest of India. And one of the recommendations at the end was that when people start to think about conserving land, that it's not just the wild land that you need to conserve, but it's also the semi-wild land. Mm. Because the majority of what they were foraging and losing access to was land where there was an interaction between humans and the wild. And very often that's the case. You know, if you're right in the middle of a the forest, there's far less than on the margins. Yeah. You know, we all know that, it's the margins of
0: the field, it's the margins yeah. of society where it's most exciting. It's so funny, isn't it? Because, you know, the wild plants are pushed to the margins and um, it's the cultures that use the wild plants now that are also pushed to the margins. and we. We kind of need to get some sort of anchor on both don't we? to, 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 you know, to also not lose. We
1: choose the margins as well. Yeah. I was thinking yesterday of Woodhaven's clove root and telling people how it followed the path. Always follows you along the path through a woodland. And, of course, when you think about it, you know, it has this tiny little yellow flower and then a you know fairly pathetic seed head with a few little hooks on it. You know, Nothing like um, burdock with all these right. many velcro-like hooks, these little hooks. But nevertheless, if you weren't near a path, you know, with animals and humans passing, you'd have nobody to hook onto. So,
0: so you know, it's, it's still using the technology, just slightly less dramatically. So it's, than... it's decided it's going to
1: follow a path, and it's developed mm-hmm. the seed mechanism to rip onto people who use the paths. Because if there's a path, if there's a deer path in the wood, I bet you'd take the deer path rather than... You know, breaking a new path through the undergrowth and vice versa.
0: And maybe it just wants to stay on the path, because I mean burdock will will stay with you for a hundred miles and, and could end up anywhere. Whereas <laughs> if something has not got a very strong hook, it's gonna drop off a few a few feet further on.
1: Yes, possibly. Mm. But it reminds me that's it's sort of amusing the incursion of the wild into civilization that always happens. Um it doesn't matter how much we try to and cement over the world, the wild will have its way in. And um, you look at Danish scurvy grass and its excursions down the motorways of Britain.
0: Yeah, that's hilarious, isn't it? When you yeah. when you look at a map of, of the British Isles and you you see where where's the scurvy grass at, and you you basically look at the M DM, three.
1: <laughs> <yeah. laughs> I remember the first time I really became aware of it. Um, you know, having. You know, started to become aware of this plant in full bloom, you know, somewhere between London and Birmingham. And sort of starting to register in my mind, yeah, what is that? And then finally because of accident or something, and I think, you know, three mile tail back. Okay, so, so yeah. you had to stop and look. <laughs> well, actually I was sitting in the fast label at and couldn't resist opening the door and quickly grabbing a bit. What is is there white flower and it's everywhere? And it's yeah. Scurvy grass. But of course, you know, with all the salt yeah. constantly washing off the road, it's
0: an opportunist. Well, do you know I read a fascinating thing the other week about that. Um do, do, do you know do you know where it where it isn't? It isn't in London. Scope cross. Mm. They're not very salty in London, I hear. Not very salty because because um the buildings and the roads and everything, they actually capture so much heat that it never gets really that cold and the and the uh, roads don't ice over, so consequently they don't need to stop. And that's why it stops on the outskirts of London.
1: But plants are opportunists. And um, it's interesting when you're looking at the medicine side of things, you know, because the, the research side of um, plants really fascinates me. Mm. So I did a late-life master's degree in herbal medicine, oh, okay. research, which, was, which I really, really enjoyed. Um, and it means that although You know, I'm not necessarily very, you know, very broad. You know, there are certain areas that I'll go into in in great depth. Um, You know, for instance, at the moment, I'm doing a lot um, with Lyme disease,
0: looking into Lyme disease. So you're looking at plants that will treat that?
1: Yes, yes. And it's interesting how often um, many of the manifestations of Lyme are also like the manifestations of lupus and these other autoimmune diseases, which are fairly modern. Um, challenges that people have to deal with, and in those, you know, the plants, some of the most opportunistic plants, um, things like Japanese knotweed, for right. instance, which is a big invasive over here, are the ones that are being turned to, and um, plants like Bidens, which isn't native over here, but in America is a sort of lazy sort of thing, right? Um, it's called sp- Spanish blackjacks or mm. something, and it's it's you know these weeds that go. Finding plants that had very slight use in the past, um, hardly referred to at all in some of the old herbals, and then playing, playing with them. Things like marsh woundwort, which has turned out to be incredibly good for people when they have sudden flare-ups. You know, with some people, um, flare-ups that would disable them for three weeks before the symptoms will calm down in a couple of days. What do you mean by flare-up? When, when somebody has a a new attack, a slightly allergic type attack, so inflammation, mm. um, sometimes coming out in the skin, a skin response, or joint pain, but, you know, a sudden flare-up. And you're saying happen. that in
0: the context of Lyme's disease? or, or, um, in or the, Well, no,
1: it, yeah. not just in the context of Lyme disease, but any of the autoimmune diseases. Right, yeah. Um, you know, and calming it back down again. There will would not be recorded in Gerard, because that wasn't... these weren't conditions that were around you know a lot of these conditions that people are having to deal with now are very much diseases of the 20th and 21st century right there's a very interesting study on the Victorians um, in around the second half of the 1800s 1850 onwards by that stage they got sanitation cracked so they were able to control disease outbreaks better and they also had the trains which could get fresh food and out of the capital. So all the disease problems, you know, the plague and disease problems of overcrowding and things, you know, to a certain extent were resolved. And all the fresh vegetables that were going in from market gardens that were starting to spring up in Essex and Kent here, taking fresh food into the capital, um, you know, it was grown organically because they hadn't invented all the chemical pesticides and herbicides that they have now. And at that stage, people were living as long as they do nowadays, or you know, um, you know, well into their sort of seventies and eighties, um, and they did not have diabetes, heart disease, you know, arthritis, uh, a lot of those you know diseases of aging, the ones now where you go to a GP and they say, "Wait, you are getting, you are getting on a bit. What do you expect?"
0: Right, but they're not really. That they are, in fact, diseases of modern life. Probably.
1: Yeah, and a lot of the are, are diseases caused by inflammation, hmm. and inflammation is caused by, you know, in many cases by your immune system being triggered too often. And one of the biggest things that will trigger your immune system is stress. Hmm. You know, we were we were supposed we were, probably were supposed to, you know, just have an attack by saber toothed tiger, you know, once a week or something, so then we could all get, you know, once it was over, fast and furious
0: we can all chill out again. Yeah, it's well, funny enough we were talking about, we talked about this with um, Alex Laird very recently, the same kind of saber-tooth tiger scenario, <laughs> yeah.
1: Leaping out from behind the wheelings. Yeah, <laughs>
0: uh, that we've managed to manufacture, you know, a thousand permutations of that. I mean, it's this it's, line awake at night, worrying about your gas bill now, isn't it? Uh, uh, more than. Yeah, and getting, getting up in the morning to a loud strident alarm.
1: Putting the television on, as many people do, so, you know, police sirens going off, bombs. You know, I'm sure that, you know, many children have seen, you know, two or three murders and a few school shootings and major tragedies, you know, before they've even finished their cornflakes, And it's so, you know, many people's homes, it's on so much that nobody really thinks, you know, the news, nobody really thinks about whether or not it's a good idea to to hear,
0: yes, you know, to send your child off to school. Well, or us appropriate. I mean, it's, 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 it's mostly nerve-wracking, isn't it? There's not a lot on the news that's soothing. No, well it's not intended to soothe you. <laughs> well, nevertheless, we need soothing. I know. Especially before we okay. go to work, so.
1: <laughs> but if you're in a constant state of anxiety, you're going to probably buy more products. Okay. So you'll be able to comfort. That's why. All right. Whether more it's news.
0: Treats, whether it's chocolate and treats to... Well, th- you know, there's another aspect of modern life that's that's also making us edgy, um, apparently. Because, I mean, if you think about face-to-face communication like this, um, you know, when I've stopped talking, you're going to say something.
1: Yes, I suppose.
0: Phew. <laughs> I thought you weren't for a minute there.
1: I suppose going to be an awkward that's, silence. That's part of so, the reason I wanted to come down. Yeah. Yeah. We, I mean, we do talk on the phone, but it's far more fun sitting here and... Yeah, Looking in the eye.
0: but even on the phone, there's 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 a voice that's hearing you, and there's the necessity of a fairly immediate response, unless you just said something really heavy that the person's got to sit there and go oh, and science. take it on board for a few <laughs> seconds. But then it might not be an awkward silence; it might be a profound silence. But anyway, what we have in modern life is text messages and Instagram, and we kind of saying something, and then we sit and thinking, I wonder why I haven't answered. Did I offend them or
2: yeah.
0: don't yeah. they think that's very important? Or And it's completely disjointed and it's like what happened with um, some researchers did this thing with mothers and babies and about how, you know, the mother smiles, the baby smiles back, the mother orients to the facial expressions of the baby. So it's like a two-way dance um, of responsiveness, basically, and that is what makes us feel bonded and. In feeling bonded, we feel safe. We're all chilled and none of these stress chemicals come through our bodies. And then they did this experiment where they did it. Okay, let's, let's let the baby see the mother's face on a, on a screen. And the mother's watching the baby's face on a screen. And so that all works well. Baby's thinking, oh, it's still mum. I don't know why she's on that screen, but it's still one-to-one responsive. And then they scramble the timings up. So now the baby's seeing the response to something it did a few seconds ago. I completely freaked out. Because now there's no, um, we're, not, we're not synchronized.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: We're, we're disjointed. That's what social media and text messages and all this other stuff does to us. We're constantly edgy because we've made the call and we're waiting for the response. And unless somebody's sitting there glued to their phone, texting you straight back, we don't have that.
1: Well, how often do you go into a cafe or a restaurant and see an entire family all out for a meal? Oh, and every single one of them? Absolutely. absolutely. Awesome. Looking at their phone. I mean, and the children run up and go, Mummy, Mummy, can I do this or that and the other? And Mum hardly even takes her eyes off the screen before she says to the child, Yes, you can. No, you can't. Sit down and be still. Um, you know, that connection is broken. Yeah. And, um, you know, children, you know, they live in the present and the now. You have to really be with them in the present and the now. Take a deep breath, look them in the eye and connect with them. Or they're going to feel of lesser importance.
0: Well, that's making me um, think about introducing the uh, Association of Foragers theme to this conversation because um, a couple of years back, a group of people from the Association of Foragers, which um, I mentioned Monica is one of the founder members of, as am I, so it's basically a, a professional association of people who somehow make a living from foraging. And we realised we needed to find a way to very succinctly summarise what we do, because there'd been so much discussion about what we were going to do, and we thought perhaps we'll do better if we can say why we do what we do. We found, we found a place to meet, which was actually a Um, a kind of hut in the woods, not far from where we're sitting now, in in my house in Kent. Um, And about 15 or 20 foragers sat there all day trying to work out how would we sum it all up? What are we trying to do? Why are we doing what we're doing with foraging? Why do we do that for a living and what do we hope to achieve? And we came up with um, three words, didn't we? We did. At the end of the day. Restoring
1: vital connection. And it really did summarise everything about that day and what everybody felt as well, um, you know, not just reconnecting, restoring, mm. you know, a connection that is absolutely vital that we can't exist without mm. um, and still live, you know, on this planet. Now, every aspect of what's happening um, connects back to the connection that we have as just one of the beings,
2: mm.
0: you know, in this world. And the reason why I mentioned it there is because you were talking about the, the, um, <clears throat> the connection being broken between people through this technology. Mm. And, you know, it's funny you said, you said earlier about the wildness still gets back in no matter what we're trying to do. And I'm really fascinated with the idea at the moment about the wildness of us. The fact that however we've been modernized, this keeps coming up every week with the podcast, I hope everybody's not sick of hearing me say it, but <laughs> I just really want to explore this idea that, that my biology and your biology and and how that translates into social life, it's still wild. You know, We, we don't sit there figuring out or using a mechanism, how to have a conversation? Until we get technology involved anyway. It's, it's the, the, the fact that we can make eye contact and have this reciprocity... And the fact that that brings us into calm body states where we all feel safe, you know, it might not be the jungles of Borneo, but this is the product of, of, of both wild ecology and wild physiology and wild neuroanatomy, and so it isn't just like the the um, the foraging in the forest thing that expresses yes. us being. I
1: think I'd have some. There's some caveats to that, okay. you know. To be to be truly wild as a person and to mm. rediscover the wildness that is that is us, we need to be able to connect with with wildness in, in it in its natural setting. Yeah, you know, if you're wild but within the context of an urban environment, I mean, wild can mean out of control. Mm. You know, there are a lot of you know when people talk about you know, oh, you know, there was a a gang of kids, they were really wild, you know, that's a very negative connotation. Yeah. And it's because we have this, um, well, in, in philosophy really, um, I think probably ever ever since Descartes, there's been this view of animals as somehow um, wild and feral and unpredictable and savage. Right. Which is actually not the case. But it's
0: false anyway. It's yes, totally yes, false. Yes.
1: But what some people think as wild is not something that's, very, that's particularly attractive. You know, it's, it's mankind as it's worse. You know, people say, oh, you know, they're behaving like animals. Well, in actual fact, animals don't behave like that. You know, nature red in tooth and claw, well, it isn't actually like that.
2: Um, yeah.
1: The world is far more, you know,
0: cooperative. Um, so they're behaving like human beings that have been severed from yeah. from the land, actually. Yeah. And severed from each other. And
1: I don't know why it was that we want that we needed to see as, as humans evolved the way that we thought philosophically, why humans felt the need to separate themselves so much from the animals. Was it some type of, you know, need to, to justify what we were actually starting to impinge upon the earth, or mm. starting to do on the earth that it's okay because we're humans and creating a new order and not like animals that we needed to separate ourselves out well of if that. you
0: think that, that class does the same thing say, so, well these people are more deserving mm-hmm. and these ones are inferior that means that we can now exploit and 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 be quite cruel to, to these because they're not they're not of the same uh, value or, or, or even of the same sort of sentience that like they't
1: what a lot of people think of as wildness is actually very immature behavior mm. you know it's uh, and it's so destructive but you know true when you meet people who are truly wild you know they're people who are um, in touch with their creativity in touch with their spirit in touch with um, you know the other than human sphere um, you know balancing a mixture you know science and art mm. you know, literature maths you know the the whole shebang
0: what is there not purely reductionist you know but not completely out in them either that sort of yeah i'm i'm gonna have a stab at at uh reworking what i've just said because I, th- I think perhaps um you're not convinced that the, this this basic social dynamic is is a wild thing let me, let me tell you why i think it is so the, the obvious thing about animals and we've we've um we talked about being chased by a tiger so we we have a antelope being chased by a tiger and what it does is run like hell and then when it escapes what it's going to do is probably shake a bit and then return to the herd and be with the herd so it doesn't wake up tomorrow needing to book a um, therapy session for for PTSD right because it's, its it's body has managed to work that out but actually it's not just its body it's that association with the other the others in the herd that has managed to get it back to a safe space where, whereby the trauma has just dissipated and now it's not going to wake up tomorrow morning, um, <clears throat> fearful and anxious as we are when something bad happens to us, we carry it around for years. Um, so what I'm saying is that with, with mammals, the thing that's evolved is this neurophysiology of, of association and bonding. And social life is a space in which our bodies um, kind of synchronise. We well, assume that's the heart connection. Yeah. They call the heart connection. Yeah. You know, but it's literally a heart connection because when people it, talk, it's their it's heartbeats literally. will go and and synchronise. Yes. And so will their breathing rate. You have an electrical field
1: around your heart. You know, I have an electrical field around mine. I recently was doing some work with a parent and a seven-year-old. Who's had a pacemaker all his life, all the seven years of his life, and sometimes finds, you know, some parts of life quite difficult. And I often think about his his heart and the energy field that his pacemaker generates, which must be very different from the energy field okay. of, of a boy yeah. that doesn't yeah. have a pacemaker, and how that would have affected um, his relationship you know, with his mother or with other people, mm. and his ability to feel safe. Mm. You know, a lot of his issues come from not feeling safe. Um, you know, and perhaps that's also, you know, coming down to actually talk to you here today. You know, we're sitting quite close. Our knees are perhaps, you know, 18 inches apart. You know, I'm very aware of being in your space, of being connected with you mm. in your space. And it's not just other humans. You know, when you're, you know, close to somebody and you hold or hug someone, you know you're very aware of their energy, but it's the same with the plants as well, mm. and trees and other
0: living things. No, I certainly agree. I think we should go on with that, but um, just to, just to sort around of this this thing up that we've we've been working with this thing that's that's I've seen it crop up in all sorts of media reports now, which is great. Just like that, if you if you hug someone and you just hang in there for longer than five seconds, I think they say about nine seconds, at that point, this attunement thing with, mm. with bodies starts happening, and oxytocin kicks in, and so you actually start bonding, and, and you get all the benefits from that bonded state, you, you you dial right down, and the chances are that after that hug, you'll you make proper eye contact, which you may not have done before, and all of the other sort of synchronising of bodies mm. and the benefits that come from that... Um, um results and and I mean I've been finding that with um our kids especially my little boy who's very very high sort of testosterone he can be a bit sort of careering around and we've realized that if we just get him to stop and have a hug and now he knows this works you know so it, so he will do it yeah I'll be wriggling off my lap um initially and I'll say, come on let's let's do it so we go for thirty seconds just to make sure. Just in case nine no doesn't do it. Not that we count, but you know, we, we, we hang in there for a bit longer. And and you know when it's work because he'll no longer be trying to get off my lap. He'll stay there for three minutes now. Because his body's died right down and it feels so good, you know. Or what, what I'm trying to say is that's wild neurophysiology. That we're not we're not using any devices to make that happen. Your body just does that. And I I think that's wonderful. I just think it's like we have been taken, as you say, out of wild environments. And that probably has its toll. But, like, w- we can start with, the, with the, um, the dynamic of our own neurophysiology, and, but also go and, go and connect with some plants and some places too, I think.
1: Yeah, which is, which is also neurophysiology in yeah. its own way as well, because, um, you know, if you think about how plants communicate with each other, you know, one of the main ways that they communicate with each other is using, you know, volatile chemicals. So right. Things. You know, plants have the ability to smell. A lot of people don't realize that because they don't have a nose sticking out the side. But in actual fact, you know, within every single cell, there's a little scent receptor. And, um, you know, trees will emit different chemicals according to what state they're in. For
0: example, if they're being eaten by an insect or chewed yeah, by a giraffe. Start, or... For instance, if you start
1: chopping down a birch tree, it'll immediately emit methyl salicylate, which is the smell of wintergreen. Right. Um, And that warns the other trees that there's something going on. So the other trees can prepare for their defence as best as possible. They can't run away. So, you know, they're going to need compounds, you know, generated or switched on. Because a lot of the compounds that are in plants are inert until they're activated by an enzyme at the point of trauma or attack. Right. You know, no self-respecting plant's going to have toxic drugs, chemicals sitting around in its own plant tissues. They only bring them out when they're needed to in many cases. And, um, you know, so the trees will, you know, act in their defence. But, you know, then there's other chemicals. So, for instance, if you go into a, you know, conifer, pine forest, um, the trees will, you know, if they're not under attack, they're going to be emitting phytoncides, which Mm. are chemicals that we breathe in that make us feel very chill and calmed and all is well. In the forest, which is why people love, you know, going for a walk in a in a, in, in a nice wood on a sunny day. Um, and don't the trees comp- don't—they don't release them right at the top, right where they can evaporate off. No, they release them at a at a level where they're going to hang well, around. They're just going to hang around so they can all, you know, they can all smell it. Which happens to be, you know, around five foot off the ground, just where our noses go.
0: That's amazing. And and don't those don't those compounds also have further benefits to us other than, other than that we feel good.
1: Well they have they've actually taken people out for walks in forest, measured the level of phyton sites in the air, you know, they've measured their heart rate, their blood pressure, and you know, it's it's a scientific fact, you know, we chill out, we relax, our heart rate drops, our blood pressure drops, you know, when there's more phyton sites in the air.
0: And does this have implications for the immune system?
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, because it's, you know, it's calming everything down. Right.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, when your antelope has been hunted, and um, but the tiger's got something else, you'll notice that as soon as the tiger's made a kill, all the other antelopes stop running around, they'll graze right next to the kill. Mm. They know the tiger's killed, they know they can chill out for another day or two until it's, you know, until it's finished.
0: And they're not freaking out at the sight of the tiger. That's the extraordinary thing. They've completely got over that. They're, well, they know, the yeah. um, they know the tiger's killed,
1: and they know that you know they know the, the patterns. You know everything. Yeah, no, But
0: if you if you got knocked over by a red car, yeah, you know, you're probably going to have a bit of a thing about red cars after that. That's the way we are. We we don't get over it, do we? Because yes, we, because
1: you know, but you don't know how you know the patterns of a red car. You know, you don't know that red cars only ever knock people down on a, every on a Tuesday. If you knew that red cars only knock people down on Tuesdays, you'd only get anxious about red cars on a Tuesday. Okay. <laughs> so they know that the tiger is killed. It's not like a random, yeah. out of control tiger with, yeah. that's totally unpredictable. You know, there's a predi- there's patterns in nature that you know most people know.
0: So, thinking again about that summary of the uh the a l f s purposes and intentions that um we come up with this thing restoring vital connection um i mean i think it's 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 fascinating that what we're talking about really is that connection itself is vital it's 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 life giving connection that we want to restore, but the fact that life just doesn't actually exist without connection. So, I mean, we've talked about this interpersonal sphere and, and connecting to land. But of course, it's foraging that we were really thinking about when, uh, when, we, when we came up with that. I'd love to hear you say what, what you feel is the, is the kind of the dynamic at work when people start foraging. You know, what, what, does that con- what is that connection and what does that connection do for people in your, in your view, Monica?
1: Well, all of life is interconnected, on this planet, all of life is interconnected, you can't get away from it. And when we unplug ourselves from the web of life, Mm. that is also the the web of, you know, the the web of the forest, the web of the mycelia, Um, when we unplug ourselves, we feel alienated from it. And when we re-plug ourselves back into that web, when we reconnect in with the web of life itself, We feel um, revitalized, nourished. Um, Don't we
0: feel like we're coming back home? Do you we think? Feel like yeah. We're coming,
1: yes, yeah. we feel like we're coming back home. And um, you know, what better way to do it than through through food? You know, it's one of the most basic things. You know, we need to eat. Without eating, we cannot live. Everything needs to eat. Um, in in most of in most cases, to eat can be eaten. Um, whether it's the Know, the tiniest of bacteria that will finish us all off and the fungi or you know the bigger mammals or whatever it is. Well but eating is something that we we all share that we will do that we have to do and you know finding our food and eating it is the most primal of of instincts you don't need to be you don't need to be taught to wander around and look at the ground avidly yeah. um, it, it comes very, very naturally. And when people plug into that, you know, it's like they go into a different zone. Time itself disappears. Um, all you have is that, is that connection. The more that you do it, the more intimate a relationship you develop. Um, you start to recognize as the, the tiny little nuances in the same way that you could pick your beloved space out of, you know, a huge, huge crowd.
2: Yeah. Yeah, you
1: know, um, you know you hear of people you know say that you know they you know this you know could pick you know they saw this sort of huge crowd on Oxford Street or something like that or a pop concert, and they could pick their beloved's head out of the middle of that. You know we have that um, ability to be really intimate, um, so so much so that um, you know we develop. Um, other ways of communicating, other than by speech and sound, where we feel very deeply connected to um, life itself, and through life itself, the, the spirit of life, the spirit moves life. Um, so, I mean, really, the food's just the excuse to actually get back there. It's much easier to get somebody, to say to somebody, hey, let's go and look for some mushrooms, rather than say, hey, let's go and have a profound experience in the woods today. <laughs>
0: Even though we all know the deeper intent, right? But I mean, I I know that when you when you get to know people and, and you actually do things with them, that's how you really get to know people, isn't it? You know, work work, work you know, cook with them or, or um, I don't know, build a shelter or make a plan or you know, you 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 you, you get to know somebody really by participating in um, right. practical stuff. So I mean, just standing there looking at land, which is—I mean—it's a big part of how people are writing about nature and and encouraging others to experience nature. But I, I think there's a certain um, aspect of kind of voyeurism about that when when you're not actually getting your hands in the soil and and um, and then getting the soil in yourself by gathering something and eating it. You know, I think I think there's that practical engagement is.
1: But, you know, there's also, I'm um, reminded of an animal study, which they showed that, you know, most animals enjoy a view. Mm. You know, they'll climb up somewhere, they'll stop, they'll look back, and they'll enjoy the view. You know, there's an element of, of seeing. I think what, yes, for me, part, for me what really yeah. creates the intimacy is actually the presence of being in the present moment. Yeah. You know, when you talk about being, or doing, or participating... You know, inging um, is the art of, of being in the present. And with, with foraging, you are very much, um, you know, in that moment. In a, you know, it, it's almost sometimes a, zen, a zen-like state, looking for mushrooms, for instance. You know, you're right. very much present. Every bit of you is present.
0: Because you're attending, right?
1: Because you're attending. You're looking you're searching, you communing, but these are inging ing states, inging ing words.
0: So I would say there's a point of contact and there's a response. I mean, it probably works both ways, but just thinking about it from, from our side, the point of contact is our attention. You know, as you say, our eyes are on the ground, but our consciousness is, is right
1: there.
0: in our eyes being on the ground. So we're not thinking about tomorrow. We're, we're here attending to this. And then we find a particular thing which we have knowledge that's an edible plant, or maybe it's a medicinal plant, and so we reach down and and grab it. That's a response, and
1: well, and sometimes they'll respond back.
0: Right. Um, Tell me about that. Then. That's What's, that's a
1: very very interesting. You know, particularly you know if you um, you know come from a research background where you know a lot of science is very reductionist and will rule out you know the. The art or the mysticism of life as well, and that is most definitely you get a response back, and um, you know some of that might be partly partly your own widening perception, and the fact that you start to see things that you didn't see before because you know as your um, your gate opens and you know, I'm aware this is a product so nobody can see my hands, but, you know, we have... You're making gate shapes. I'm making little gate shapes with my hands and showing how it widens. You know, when when you um, ask somebody, you know, who walks to work every day through the streets, you know, to name all the plants they saw along the way, you know, a lot of people just, they struggle to even remember what plants there were, maybe, you know, one significant cherry tree or something. Um, But once you know things are important, Um, you stop filtering them out. Um, You become aware of them and your your gate opens, your visual gate opens, you see so much more. Hmm. Now, I'm very convinced that when people's visual gate opens, so their emotional gate opens too. Um, They enter this liminal space, um, you know, in which we're suspended, which is why Foraging can actually be a very, you know, emotional experience for people who haven't spent a lot of time in liminal space recently have been overwrought by you know the electronic world that we live in um, you know so i think that that's a, that's a big part of it but you know when you notice things a lot more then things present themselves to you um, and this is why you're, you know you're very often hear um stories like the one when i was up driving up in space uh, you know off to um, a whiskey distillery i was doing some foraging for and driving along and i had joel um, with me from the States, you know, forage right trees. Mm. And we're driving along and I'm paying attention to the road because it's a narrow road and the big trucks from the distilleries come the other way pretty fast and take up a big chunk of the road. So you don't feel particularly safe. And suddenly I said to him, Joel, we have to go back. And he said, What is it? And I said, There's a cauliflower fungus up on that hill. Now I was looking at the road. But somewhere within my
0: peripheral vision, the, the
1: very edge of my peripheral vision—not just sideways, but up a hill—there mm. was a cauliflower. You flat caught it. Like yeah. and we, we went about half a mile down the road. Till we found somewhere safe to turn around. Went back, and I went straight to it. And you know, I—and it was yeah. a football-sized cauliflower. You know, On this, you know. So you start to first of all develop this peripheral vision. Mm which comes of a knowledge of the landscape and a knowledge of the plants and its inhabitants and an understanding of, you know, what each other than human being, um, where they like to live, what their preferences are, who they'd like to be next to.
0: Yeah, so you look at an area and you think that's a a Morelli sort of place, or that's a a chickweed kind of area.
1: This is is where you're not even consciously thinking that. Mm. You know, but you look somewhere, you recognise that habitat and the morales pop up and you go, Hey, here we are! <laughs> and I have had a couple of experiences where it's, um, you know, the, the communication back um, has almost been um, as vivid as if somebody had called my name. Mm. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, two years ago, I was out looking for purslane, pink purslane. It was November. Um, there had been some snow the day before, so I'd long-stopped thinking about you know, mushrooms and fungi. And I was only looking at, looking for pink person. Which is
0: a salad plant, right? Which, is, yeah. a, which yeah. is a
1: salad plant that yeah. takes the opportunity of the buttercups and everything else having died back to put in a little appearance in the cold months. It has fleshy leaves mm. and can withstand the frost. So it just likes it when everybody else has cleared away and it gets its chance in the sun. And um, a chef, a Scottish chef, had gone down to London to do an event and had run out of some salad garnishes. And I don't normally collect um, for restaurants and things, but, you know, he had to keep the flag flying. He was doing it at (laughs) Harris, So I'm out looking for five kilos of the stuff. Wow. So I'm very intently walking along a place I've never been before. I'm along a riverbank, looking for pink purslane, where I've been told I've found pink purslane. And there's a lot of oak trees around, but I'm not really thinking about the trees, because I'm looking for pink purslane. And suddenly, I heard somebody call my name. But it wasn't actually a voice. I knew it wasn't a voice. I wasn't hearing anything or right there. But inside me, something had called my name. You know, Oi, Monica. And, you know, it was so real that I sort of stopped in my tracks, looked over my shoulder, and there was a sort of pathway that went off sort of to the left of me and slightly behind me. Um, I hadn't come up it and walked past it, but it joined the path I was walking on now. And I felt compelled to walk down this path. Yeah. And about two or three trees down, there was this very large oak tree. And I literally stood in front of it and sort of like half laughing at myself, looked at the tree and I said, what? And for some reason, the tree seemed to hold my attention. And then it just, you know, my gaze just dropped down. And there was this big pile of leaves around the bottom. I mean, it was November. And as I looked at them, this pile of leaves suddenly took shape and became a hen of the woods. Huh. Right. I hadn't even walked past that tree, you know. So, you know, there's a big debate to be had as to whether or not my understanding of the habitat and my um, you know, the edge of my ability to now perceive differences in texture and colour, you know, and whether or not, you know, the tree and the fungus delight in being found. You know, because after all, you know, a lot of plants and fungi, you know, they do want to be, you know, they want their spores... You're going to take the spores to to
0: somewhere entirely different, aren't you, in all likelihood?
1: And. Um, Plants when the fruit is ripe and they're ready to be carried other places will put out a sweet aroma to attract you, to mm. call you. To, mm. You know, these are ways of communicating that we have forgotten about. You know, we tend to think of communication as language. Um, I wrote a brief piece on my um, blog um, using the word biosemiosis as a way of trying to explain this, you know, which literally means biological signaling. Yeah to keep that away from this semantics of what is communication and conversation. Do plants communicate? No, but biosignosis is biological signalling. Yeah. And if you think of that, you know, then chemistry is a language. Mm. I mean, I just love that idea. Chemistry is a language because yeah, I was really shit at chemistry <laughs> at school, but I did like languages.
0: Well, that's what pheromones are, aren't they? With, exactly.
1: It's... You know, and something like a, a desert locust on its antenna has like a hundred thousand receptors. For individual chemicals. You know, a plant, you know, plants, you know, are covered with with noses, oh. you know, with these scent receptors in each cell. And there's this language of chemicals going on that we've we've forgotten. We're the ones who've forgotten. But We're we the ones not
0: But speaking. we have these sensors as well, don't we? The the the, the, um, do, the sensors in our nose is able to comprehend a vast number of chemicals. I forget how many it is, but
1: But we mask them, we anaesthetise ourselves. You know we cover ourselves up with you know scents and smells to change the way that we are to remove our wildness Mm. um you know you go i have this huge bugbear at the moment about you know going into toilets in cafes and bars and public spaces where these chemicals that anesthetize your your noses you know squirted into your faces you know but to go into a forest to go into a forest in autumn um and smell the fungi before the mushrooms have even popped up you know those rich and beautiful mm. smells you just want to put your nose yeah. into the earth you know that's another form of
0: reconnecting well I've, I've um, become quite disciplined with, a, with a, a yoga routine that I do um, in the last couple of years and uh, in the warmer months last year I started doing it outside mm. and a lot of these Exercises you're doing prostate on the ground, and so I get my nose down in the grass and in the soil for for quite a few minutes of every day, and I swear it's a big difference. It, I I um I really fought it when the winter came, and I started ripping muscles and things trying to do yoga in the cold. So I gave in and came inside, but it's it's a it's a big part of that daily routine. I'm not just getting the yoga; I'm getting the my body's touching the ground and I'm smelling it. And the wind on my face, and all these kind of things is is part of. I mean, I guess we're shifting on a different subject there, but that's like the effect on the vital connection of simply the fact that we live in buildings, because we're never used to. And
1: many of the times we yeah. stop breathing. And when you think about mm-hmm. it, you know, when you're a bit stressed and a bit tense, mm-hmm. your breathing's quite shallow. Right. Yeah. You yeah. know, and then you suddenly remember, and it's. Ah, you know, suddenly remember to drop my diaphragm and Mm. breathe. And there's something about being outside, you know, the smells of the outside. You know, when, you know, when nature's happy and doing her things, the smells are those that say, take a deep breath and just relax. Hmm. No (laughs) tigers. And when you do that, you know, you, again, you feel reconnected. You connect in, you're plugged back in to the speed at which, you know, we evolved to operate.
0: I mean, the funny thing for me is that we, we end up being more present in our own bodies when we do that. It's, it seems sort of paradoxical. When, when we're connecting with something outside ourselves, we're actually more present in our own skin. Whereas when we're freaking out and worried about tomorrow or yesterday or something that isn't here, we're absolutely not present.
1: Yeah, and in a way it's to do with reconnecting the head Mm. to the body, the Mm. brain to the body, Mm. through our physicality. Mm. I mean, I often say to people, it's a a real shame that we have necks. All right. All right, because, well, you know, we've got this brain on a little stalk joins the rest of this body. And we're aware of the fact that our bodies are an organism where everything's connected, you know, the blood goes all the way around and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, if we're, if we're unwell in our bodies, you know, it's an illness. If we're unwell in our heads, it's something completely connected. It's almost as if our neck allows us to separate our head and our brain. Right. You know, from our physical body. Yeah. Um, I mean, imagine if we didn't have necks, all right? <laughs> Try it, put your jumper over your head and just poke your eyes out. No. If you didn't have a neck, and our brain was located in our chest, just above our heart, it would never occur to us to think that we were... That it was a different that we bit. Were separate, or that...
0: It's a bit like Brexit, isn't it? If we didn't have the English Channel, we'd never have the bizarre idea that we could leave Europe.
1: <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it's like, when, when, you know, with illness, um, you know, very often if there's a, um, you know, if what's causing the illness is a stress or an anxiety or something that's, you know, initially felt by the, the brain more than the body, but of course it connects the body, it's sort of dismissed as psychosomatic or, you know, some sort of non-scientific sort of voodoo sort of illness. Mm. Um, and it's only accepted that we have an illness if it's actually you know, located from, you know, a um, injury to the body somehow. And yet, you know, it's completely indivisible. You know, you, you can't, I mean, in Africa where I grew up, you know, a cure wasn't always just treat the patient, it was sometimes treat the community. Right. Treat the social aspects of it. You know, you have to treat the, you know, the spirit as well as the body. Our ability to separate our brains from the rest of our bodies um, is a little bit um, physically emblematic of our relationship with nature as well. Our brains connect with this electronic world that we have created, mm. this busy, busy electronic world where we spend far more time in the um, pursuit of it than we do of getting food. I mean, foragers spent half a day working not eight
0: hours. Yeah, and now our, our eight hours is largely interacting with screens yes, for many people. Yes,
1: and then our free time is spent managing our brand offline. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, people spending time on Facebook and Twitter are aware that everything they do is recorded and has the potential to be reviewed at some point in the future or will contribute to how people think of them socially. Um, what your next future employer might happen to look back at your Facebook profile or whatever. Uh, When we separate our brains from our bodies and plug into this electronic world that we've created, we quickly lose our sense of place Mm. on this planet, on this earth. I mean, otherwise, how on earth could we treat this earth, this one blue planet that we all live on in the way that we do? When you look at the desecration it was quite shocking flying off to, flying to America recently because I flew over Hudson Bay and the, that part of Newfoundland and Canada and of course it's all under ice and you're looking down you can see these sort of beautiful rivers curving in S shapes through icy polar landscapes and occasional rivers coming in with ice flows and incredible formations and suddenly there's a straight line as if somebody drawn a ruler through wow. the landscape, and it must have been a pipeline, you know, and it was a suddenly brutal um, straight line that said...
0: None of that, none of that curving business.
1: That, none of that curving business. I mean, you notice in nature how everything curves. Um, nothing exists in straight lines, really. And yet every... You know, As we
0: come in and say, let's just let's get this straight.
1: Let's have straight lines. Let's live in, <laughs> let's live in cubes and boxes on grids. I mean is there anything more emblematic of our divorce from nature than architecture?
0: So we're we're going to spill back out again. (laughs) We're going to ooze out of the cracks in these uh, rectangular formations and be curved again.
1: Yeah well possibly I mean (laughs) I don't think I don't think that I'm probably going to be alive to see the the world just before the apocalypse (laughs) however that may be. I mean there have been so many changes in life already um, but it'll be very interesting to see if you know the generations coming up, you know, do manage to find a way to live sustainably on this planet, this beautiful planet. I wish I could change it, but I'm becoming more and more resigned to the fact that um, I'm just going to have to go around reminding people that it was a beautiful place to live and a wondrous place to be. I just kind of sound like a nostalgic old lady. It Monica, Monica,
0: it really what are you saying?
1: We're,
0: we're, <laughs> we're restoring vital connection, aren't we? We're
1: restoring vital connection, but sometimes you feel weary. Hmm. I think travelling does, you know, when you see some of the bigger landscapes. You know, here in the British Isles, it, it's really quite small. You know, it takes me an hour in each direction to go from coast to coast seeing some of the vast landscapes in America where I was in February um, in some ways are quite daunting. You know, huge parts of the desert enclosed along the, these m- highways that go on forever with locks full of hundreds and thousands of heads of dairy cattle standing on parched earth and then a great big barn where they straw bales where that would be taken out to them once or twice and being aware of the you know, the huge nature of cities suburbs that go on forever and you can't go anywhere without a car public transports you know very different non-existence it's a car culture mm. and you know or flying over some places where there is you know you're, you're just reminded of how far humans have spread how much of the world they've taken over, and in ways that are just not compatible with the earth as it was, there's no respect for it anymore. But the size of quarries, or even yeah, yeah. up in Scotland, you know, when I turn off the motorway to go home, there's this huge landfill pit, this massive pit, and the banks are shored up, you, know, you can't really go up and look into it or see into it. But you know it's there, you can smell it, the birds fly in and bring out the litter. I'd like to take a drone over it and look inside it. Um, I, I imagine from flying over it, you know, that's where thousands and thousands of tons of this garbage that we generate every day go. Hmm. So I try to be optimistic, but there are some times when my heart is just very weary and heavy because the message has been there for so long. And when you go back and read people like, you know, René Dubois, you know, he's been writing, what was it, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, the same messages of, to, of today, you know, people in the 60s talking about the same things that we're still talking about now. Are we seeing real change? There's certainly a hell of a lot more of us now. So, yeah, I'm trying not to get old and bitter and cynical. I'm trying to hold on to that hope and a lot of that's through, you know, taking younger people out foraging.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say that.
1: You
0: know, it's the kids, isn't it? Foraging, you know, that's where the hope, energy. yeah,
1: yeah. As you get older, you know, you'll, you you realise that you're trading energy for wisdom well, or hoping, that, <laughs> hoping that's the trade-off anyway. <laughs> Um, you don't have quite the same energy levels that you did when you were angry and i Yeah. No, angry and 56.
0: Well, I don't I don't know if there's a connection but it just makes me think, uh, I've just, just written this book about food and flavour and the guy was talking about something which people don't really think about now and that's that, you know, we we eat all the young chickens and the young, everything really animals don't allow to grow old but um apparently the the older ones don't just subjectively taste better there's the the flavor chemicals are far more, far more present the sort of really tasty things in chicken is there in an older bird
1: <laughs> well, I, don't you know
0: if we, I don't know if i can put that to analogous use somehow like we're you know well, we're not rushing about so much but we're we're kind of somehow
1: like oh, a ten ten year If, if adults,
0: chewed upon, this there's, there's, there's a better flavour that's yielded up. Yeah. Well,
1: it's like the seaweeds that you find at the back of the cupboard.
0: Yeah, the they've ten aged. Year, ten yeah.
1: year old aged dulse. Nothing beats it. Well yeah. past itself by date, absolutely yeah. delicious.
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah, well it just reminds me this there's, there's there's a uh, charcuterie section at the at the Good Shed in Canterbury. This guy gets stuff in from the Basque region, and, and, and he has this um. This uh. This old cow ham. I mean, it's not really ham, really. It's made from beef, but we ended up calling it old cow ham. It's the the <laughs> oldest cow, and and it's the fl- it's the tastiest thing on that stall, and he only has it sometimes.
1: What's interesting is how long some species live. Um, coming out of London, and my first view of Kent from the M twenty five. There was a landscape that, you know, I nostalgically remember from my childhood as the green fields of Sussex and Kent, but all I could actually see was urban sprawl and pylons, and I wondered what it would be like to be a bird, And you know, seen changes, you know, how would birds perceive changing in the landscape, and mm. wondered how, how long birds actually live for. And um, apparently the oldest albatross is about 62 years old. I had no Amazing. idea that albatrosses lived that long, mm. Mm. so that's sort of sense of perspective, but certainly things are changing very fast. I mean, in the UK, you know, we add another 400,000 people to this country every year, and, I, you know, I do, it, it is hard to believe that, you know, that we're going to be sustainable as humans if we don't radically change. And this message has been pumped out for years and years and years. Well, Nobody's changed. There's, there's no leaders anymore you know, in the politics. There's no leaders. There's no people willing to, um, you know, to have honesty with people about the fact that change is needed. Big changes are needed.
0: Yeah, no one's telling the truth. No one's standing, sees their position as to to be a clarion call of like, this is where we are. This is what needs to happen. Yeah, and <laughs> I think
1: people, people under un, underneath it all, there's a unspoken understanding that change is needed, and I think that's why people are voting for the radical ends of politics, but because just, the right yeah. leaders aren't coming forward. Mm. So they're voting for the extremes that will upset the systems mm-hmm. so that change can come forth, the change that we need. Mm. But we, we badly need those leaders. But it's difficult with the, the way that a lot of the systems have become so enmeshed. And so apart from you know, our nature, our basic nature, when you talk about restoring the vital connection, they've become so alien it's almost as if they're not systems through which leadership can come forward. Mm. Maybe we should make all politicians go foraging as part of. <laughs> part of
0: well, this the is foraging. it because you say you say the message has been out there. Um, I'm I'm not so sure it has because like the, the the message that you're I mean I I don't know the specific people that you're you're thinking of, but to. To do what we're doing now and thinking of it purely in terms of the problem, is is this disconnect. This fragmentation of of what have always been um, just a non-negotiable fact that people related to the land that they lived on, that they related to the people that are around them, um, that food would fit into the biology of our bodies rather than being something that disrupts the biology of our bodies you know to to do the I think we've done a really important piece of work to end up articulating the problem as a severance of life-giving connection because to me if if we if we work around on the peripheries of that and say well let's get kids to eat more vegetables or let's you know we we we're, we're addressing symptoms of, of the loss of connection but if we see at every point we need to see, it's that vitality that comes when, when, when people have roots in the ground, basically. I mean, that, I think that's a great metaphor for the, the connection, you know, that we are rooted in our bodies, we're rooted in our communities, rooted in our landscapes. That We see that's what we've got to do. We've got to get our roots back into the soil. Um, and it depends how... how you-
1: much it goes back into the soil and that's really looking at when we believe that that severance really occurred yeah when I mean, you talk about children eating more vegetables and how a food disconnect has happened and you know I see that see that a lot you know people coming into the herbal medicine clinics uh, a lot of people are coming in unable to eat uh, gluten dairy eggs legumes I mean Quite often, you'd wonder what people are existing on because they cut out, you know, every every sort of food group. Um, eating the most.
0: Basic. I'm on a know most things diet. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I think some of that, you know, the food food problems, both with getting kids to eat more vegetables and things like that, but also coming the other way with food intolerances. There's a lot of that again has come from a disconnect with nature and with the seasons. And when I talk to people about seasonality, everybody nods. They think they know what seasonality means. Seasonality to most people means, you know, you should wait for the asparagus to come up in Norfolk and make sure it's not burning from Peru and make sure the strawberries come from raspberries come from, you know, one of the glens in Scotland.
0: Never mind it's being grown under glass when, when it's when it's like not even raspberry season anyway, but yeah.
1: Yeah, but in actual fact it's much more profound than that. Because if you go back to pre-agriculture, if you say the severance happened before agriculture dominated everything, um, then you truly see that entire food groups go in and out of season. Yeah. Now imagine if you taught your children that wheat was something that you only ate
0: in the autumn. In the autumn,
1: through the winter, and that come spring, you ran out because you'd eat it out over the winter, and you went six months. You know, without wheat, until you enjoyed it again in the autumn, and that sugar only came into season in June. and was there in July, and August. What, in but, fruit form, you mean? <laughs> in fruit form, or in honey form. I mean, if you you know you say to people, well, the fruits go out of season, where's your sugar coming from?
0: Well, you have a sneaky bit of birch, sap, birch syrup in, in, uh, in March, couldn't
2: you? You
1: could, but yeah. it takes, you know, it takes 100 litres of birch sap to make a litre of birch sap syrup. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's a lot of time, a lot of heat, a lot of resource, a lot of energy. That's why
0: well, I said a sneaky bit. Yeah, you're not, <laughs> you're, you're not gonna, you're not gonna, you're not you know, gonna you make yourself. That. I mean, if you, yeah,
1: if, you yeah, have, yeah. if you sit down and have some birch sap, do you just pour it liberally. it? No, we very
0: rarely use fresh it, to be honest.
1: Fresh think, fresh <laughs> we'll have a
0: bit of birch syrup with this. We, you know, we definitely real, get out, yeah. It's a real yeah, treat that yeah, you treasure. Yeah.
1: And honey, well, you know, if you empty the hives of honey in the autumn, you know, the bees aren't going to have anything to feed off during the winter. And bees are not making honey during the winter because there ain't any flowers. You know, so even honey has a season. People don't think that. Milk has a season. You know, animals traditionally get pregnant in the spring. They have their calves. They produce, you know, milk when they've moved up to the high, lush mountain pastures during the summer. And over the winter you know, they'll either have weaned their calves or they'll keep them at sort of, you know, low um, weaning rate, you know, just sort of comfort-sucking more than anything else. Because the next spring, you know, they're going to get pregnant again. You know, they can't sustain every calf forever. So, you know, there's a specific season, you know, hmm. for dairy. Even. And once you start to think of whole food groups as being seasonal, um, then you actually understand a lot more about what's happening with people and diet now, because if you realise that wheat has a season, then to imagine that you can eat wheat a bit, you stuff your face day, with it, yeah. Have a sandwich for lunch every day, yeah. and pasta when you get home for supper every day, 365 days of the year, you know, after 20, 25, 30 years, are you surprised if somebody feels a bit gluten sensitive? No, but that doesn't mean that you give it up completely. You know, you give it up completely and you decimate the bacterial um, colony that likes eating and breaking down wheat, you know, in your gut. And then if you haven't got to the bottom of why your gut was inflamed and tender and sore to start with, then sooner or later something else is going to be acting as the trigger. So you give that up and something else will act as the trigger. Now what you actually need to do is to broaden your bacterial community in your gut. And one of the best ways of doing that is foraging. You know, because hunter-gatherers have about 300% more microbial diversity in their gut. So rather than cutting out... For, I mean, I believe that, you know, if you've got a really sensitive, inflamed you know, stomach or gut, that you may need to cut certain food groups out in order to allow yourself to heal. But while you're doing that, do the work on your stress management levels, on your bacterial community, take lots and lots of herbs. it's not
0: just about what you... Our eating yeah. it's, it's Take
1: it's, herbs, go it's, out, eat dirt,
0: yeah.
1: and then reintroduce those at the right season, in, in proportion to, you know, what the season calls for.
0: Well, I mean, there's a fascinating thing along the lines of what hunter-gatherers would have done that we don't, that I actually tried out a little while ago. Because they would have eaten the stark contents of the animals that they hunted
1: have eaten pretty much everything, all the organ meat, mm. you know, anything that um, could be eaten would be eaten
0: in a way. So partially digested plant stuff. I, I mean, I I've, I've sort of worked my way up to it because I did this. But, but we had a deer in the in the um, last winter, I think it was, and um, I cut open the stomach just to have a look. I thought, well, I don't know what it's been eating, and um, I couldn't make out much of it. But, you know, it's mostly leaf stuff, but I I was hoping I might be able to identify some of the leaves, which I have been able to do with pigeons. I've Mm. cut open, um, pigeon stomach and found little bits of speedwell and things like that. Um, but I couldn't quite bring myself to, to, uh, eat some the first time around. Um, I just was exploring that as an idea, but I'd heard this radio program about the Hasda and saying that one of the reasons they gut flora was so great is because they eat the, liver, they don't wash their hands after they've gutted an animal, so they're in- inevitably going to get all sorts of bacteria mixed in with food they eat, and they're going to eat with those hands, but they actually do eat the stomach contents as well. So I, 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 um, I did it with a squirrel. We've, we found a squirrel, um, a roadkill squirrel, and I cut open the stomach, and it had been eating beech nuts. So those parsley partially digested, and it seemed like they were fermented, but I don't know, maybe it's just the soundness from the uh, digestive enzymes, but I ate something It was quite tasty. <laughs> I didn't eat it all, but just enough to, to think, okay, there's going to be some bacteria in here mm. and, um, that's going to go into my gut. Um, so who knows whether that's improved my gut for or not, <laughs> but I thought I needed to show willing to, to sort of move into this uh, other territory, you know, that there was a, there was a whole, um, broad embrace, you know, lots of different points of contact for getting bacteria into your body that that the hunter-gatherer diet would have included.
1: Well, at Um, the moment the focus is very much on the gut microbiome, but of course it's not the only microbiome. Mm. You know, Mm. we have a skin bacteria Mm. microbiome. Which
0: we are sabotaging every time we use the nasty substances that are in all of the public conveniences and restaurants and so on. But we also have
1: a microbiome in our lungs and our respiratory, you know, our sinuses. Wow. So we have a respiratory tract microbiome. And what they... What's that do? Um, Well, I don't know what it's doing, specifically. But a lot of it will be helping to protect us from airborne bacteria and viruses. Right. Yeah. So there's a paper that came out, um, I think, just in January this year that showed that children who have constant um, frequent lower respiratory tract infections, your lung infections, have a very different nasal
0: microbiome to children who don't get frequent lung infections. So, so are we going to have snot transfers now? We've had fecal <laughs> transfers to boost people's uh, gut
1: flora. Well, there's got to be a lot of difference between breathing in a wood and breathing somewhere where chemicals are being pumped into the air.
0: Oh, I see. Can we have a snout transfer, please? I was trying to horrify my kids yesterday, and one of them boasted in front of one of our guests that she did, she did pick her nose and eat it. I said, well, are you going to pick someone else's nose and eat it? I was trying to sort of out, out uh, yeah. disgust. I thought, I won. She said, that, was, that was terrible. But <laughs> perhaps picking somebody else's nose and eating it is the answer to um, respiratory problems, Monica.
1: Possibly. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't get many respiratory problems. I obviously have first-class snot. <laughs> Where were we? <laughs> we were on the gut. <laughs> we were on the gut.
0: We were on the respiratory, d- anyway,
1: yeah. Well, it, I mean... It's not funny, is it? it? It's to do with that severance of connection. You know, if we se- sever ourselves from the air that we breathe and only, you know, breathe manufactured, recycled, chemically tainted, perfumed and chemically fragranced air, we're gonna sever our health. Right, right. Hmm. I mean they've shown that, you know, people who live on streets with high levels of pollution have higher rates of dementia, have higher rates of cardiovascular disease.
0: Well my mother's got Parkinson's disease and she she lived for f- 40 years in a house surrounded by land, which is um, conventionally farmed, we think, probably, it's the pesticides that she was breathing in. Yeah. On a fairly regular basis, year after year, because she was a housewife at home. Mm. Out in the garden, hanging out the washing, while chemical warfare is being declared on all the plants and insects that Mm. weren't wheat and sugar beet, in the field next door.
1: You also look at um, schools now, a lot of them are hermetically sealed so children don't experience the air pollution from the streets and all the cars and the exhaust fumes. Um, but they're inside those exposed to air where, where there's cleaning chemicals and, you know, floor polish and all these other things if going on. it doesn't on. get you out there,
0: it'll get you in here. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: I was telling somebody yesterday that um, when I was little, um, we used to sometimes go and stay with my aunt The Easter holidays, and she lived down in the the Cotswolds. This was when we couldn't go back home to Kenya. So, my poor aunt would have five of us and three of her own, ranging in ages from about sort of six to 13. And when it got all a bit too much, they used to chuck us in the back of the Land Rover, drive out into the middle of the Cotswolds, and dump us and say, You know, if you can get to the ship at X Village before closing, you can have a ginger bin. Those were some of my happiest memories. Trailing through a system of, you know, footpaths and field margins with sticks, and you know, sometimes there'd be arguments. You know, most often the older ones learned to be a little bit more caring of the younger ones, and we'd devise ways to to carry them and so on and so forth. You wouldn't dream of chucking your kids out in the middle, out of the back of a Land Rover in the middle of nowhere now and letting them find their way. But I've got a very, very good sense of direction now. Yeah. You know, childhood has changed very, very quickly for many, many children. And that's a real shame, because it's the sort of final nail in the coffin of that severance. You know, so, you know if you sever children from nature, um, how do they even have an inkling of where they want to get back to,
0: or how to get back to it. I forget who it was I was reading, they were, they were saying, um, that in their opinion, uh, the, the people that really care about wild landscapes and other species and really have a be in their bonnet to stop the kind of degradation and so on, are, are people who have bonded with some other species at a certain point in their childhood. Mm-hmm. I and mean, they really have a thing about it. You can actually go and ask people, go and ask these people, and they'll tell you, well, it was, I was nine, and it was a blue whale, or, you know, I was eight, and it was a such-and-such beetle, or something like that. They just had something that happened where they made this connection with some kind of wild species, and that that changes everything. From then on, they're, they're like they're married kind of thing mm-hmm. to, 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 the, to the wild land, and they'll, they'll fight to protect it.
1: I've also heard it said that if you give a child a love of nature before they're ten, they will have it for life. Well, it's the same thing, isn't it? Because
0: that love, of, that love of nature probably will be um, a, an experience with some particular animal or plant, if you actually mm. search it search it out. Yeah.
1: And for some, the experience of actually being with their father yeah. or their mother, mm. where they had their father's or mother's company and attention in a landscape too.
0: Well, for me it was my grandfather taking me out mushroom pick at age six, which just mm. totally changed my life experience. My,
1: my first I experience totally of foraging yeah. in Britain was not so far away in Sussex. Mm. Um, I was at a boarding school when I was, by the time I was nine, and some friends of ours from Kenya, their grandmother lived on the border of Kent and Sussex in an old oak house, she was French, And she kind of took me under her wing as a sort of extra grandchild, used to come and take me out we used to walk through the lanes. And I still remember that, getting back to her close house and she'd scrape off a little bit of jaggery, which is a type of coconut sugar pyramid (laughs) 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 and give me something a little bit sweet at the end of it as well. But, you know, those are, those are my, you know, my memories are not just of the, the plants and how I connected with those, but with the people. Mm. Of the plants,
0: yeah.
1: The guardians of the plants and the plant
0: knowledge. Well, the, tr- the, the 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 trouble is, I was trying to cheer myself up during your lament a few minutes ago about how awful everything is, and and you know, I think by the way, it's very important and it's great that we'll be broadcasting this podcast with with that kind of edge to it because if we don't mourn and and uh, bewail the situation that we're in both kind of sitting quietly and grieving almost for all this stuff but also vocalizing it you know then well we're not going to do anything about it if we if we, if we just all chipper and go no no we can yeah. but still I was mentally going no no we can and Get
1: to Mars.
0: <laughs> no, yeah, just no, I don't on. believe that nonsense. Yeah, no, if we <laughs> screwed this one up, how are we gonna, yeah, that's just the height of arrogance, I think. But, um, but no, I just think, but it's the kids though. It's the kids. So, you know, kids are a lot more clued up. Kids of nine now, you know, they hassle their parents to recycle and this, that, and the other. But, but now we're talking about this thing um, with the technology Locking them in, locking their attention in, and their mm. way of being, and that we're so shit scared that they're going to be. Stranger danger. molested dangerous. Molested by someone, which is no more likely to happen now. And anyway, we all know it's not stranger danger. It's your family and your your your, your parents, mates that are more likely to do that than some stranger. So it just doesn't even make sense. But for some reason, we won't let our kids go out. But it, that's also so,
1: to do with the severance yeah. of connection. Connection to communities, you know, to other people that you trust. Connection to tribe. Mm. Connection to being able to trust
0: your own wilder instincts. But what I was going to say there is just, it's just that... Damn it, Monica, I was saying it's the kids. (laughs) And now, we—but the the kids are just looking at their iPad and... Help! So we, we, we we've got to get those kids out foraging you know yeah and that, which is which is something we're working on doing to to uh to, to start doing more and, and work t- in and schools and yeah
1: and i think it's really important because if you take children who um are nine ten even eleven twelve they're very early teens and you they've been brought up in cities and they're just used to concrete and straight lines and um, the way that systems work in the cities and electronics, and you take them out into the countryside or wood, they feel extremely uncomfortable. It's a very, very alien environment. Once you teach them a little bit about foraging, if you teach them um, you know the names of the plants, if you just got them to try and learn the names, it wouldn't mean anything, but the names are connected to the plants when you taste them. Mm. when you ingest them, that yeah. there is that element of communion yeah. to eat the yeah. body. Yeah. And you know, then they start to remember. And foraging of even the most simple and basic weeds is really important because once children know those names, every time they go into a wild space, they'll see those. And it's like seeing kin again. So yeah. 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 inversely, if I went to an urban area, and I'm walking around and I'm not really sure of the area. I don't really know if it's a good area or a bad area. If people are going to be friendly, if there's lots of muggers or whatever. And I suddenly see you across the street and I think, oh, there's Miles. And a little one familiar further face, down. And and I think, oh, you know, there's, there's Ali. And, oh, you know, there's Jack over there and Maureen.
2: Yeah.
1: I may not speak to them, but I immediately start to feel calmer. I'm suddenly surrounded by the familiar.
0: Yeah, it's home, again.
1: And when you can walk yeah. down any lane or go into any park or any forest and you can <clears> say, there's nettle, there's dandelion, there's plantain. Mm-hmm. You know, these become the friends. These become the way of um, reassuring you. We can locate ourselves. You can yeah. locate yourself in that environment and that makes you feel at ease. Mm. You know, so, so no teaching is lost. And we have this debate... Um, in the Association of Foragers quite often about whether or not people ought to do a course so that they can become qualified to teach foraging. I personally don't like that. I'm so glad that there isn't a foragist, a foragology, or a foragism. (laughs) Enough isms, isms, know What is wonderful is that um, if somebody can teach ten plants well, they will have done, you know, a job that, you know, will, should confer on them a sainthood. Because it's the passion and the, um, the joy that you can impart through the stories of the plants. And even ten plants taught well can ignite the fire to learn.
0: Well, it certainly does. Enthusiasm for more. A- anyone that learns ten plants, there's no way they're just going to say, ten, that's enough for me. Yeah.
1: Exactly. No way. Gonna... On my walks, I've given up actually um, spending too long trying to get people to remember the exact botanical detail and all the rest of it. And I'll tell them quite openly at the beginning. Um, I'm just going to tell you about everything that I know that we encounter on the way, and by the end of it, most of it will be going through your head. But my job is just to inspire in you an addiction. Yeah. You know, the the desire to learn more, and then just learn one new plot a week. Well, by the end of two years, that's a hundred. It, it, it's it's <laughs> almost like
0: you're you, you're matchmaking in a way. Like these people that, that, that get the lonely hearts club to, together and say, you know, I think you'd get on with so and so. And we're matchmaking between people and land. We're just like let's just get them together in a room.
2: Yeah.
0: And let the magic happen. So we get them together. We get people in the forest together in a forest. Only enough. That's very much. Right. And let the magic happen.
1: My daughter's doing um, forest therapy. Oh, great. Therapy. I'm glad you're going to talk about that. Yes. Shinrin-yoku. Um, and say it again. What is it? It's called it's Shinrin-yoku, yeah. um, which is a Japanese concept of forest bathing, bathing your senses in the forest. Beautiful. There's no, no nudity and water required. <laughs> um, but you know, they're, very, they're very clear in the organisation that she belongs to that you're not a therapist, nature is a therapist, you're merely the guide. Right, yeah. Um, You're creating rituals that um, help people to get comfortably and safely into the space Mm. where nature just does her thing. And that connection with nature will move you. You When you connect, you cannot fail to be moved.
0: I just think there's such a thing, I'm always banging on about this, this Analogy of home, you know, but I'm not. Just, it isn't really an analogy. You know, like we we are welcomed home. I feel when when we start getting to know a few plants, or just just habitually spending time in wild spaces. You know, I feel like it's like the the landscape's almost with arms gathering us in and saying, "It's good that you're here." You yeah. know.
1: Because in most parts of the world, there is an abundance. You know, nature provides an abundance for us. Mm. That, well, if you don't know the plants, you, how can you know that? If you don't know the fungi, how can you know that? And that's what's so nice about travelling sometimes, exploring mm. different habitats and other people's lives. You know, excepting for some of the more hospitable far ends of the earth. And even then, you know, humans have managed to spread pretty much everywhere nature offers abundance, we've yeah. just forgotten how to be grateful.
0: That's right, I mean we're being, we're, we are essentially being hosted right, we're, we we have a, a an extravagant host in terms of the landscape supplying us with everything we need um, and yet we walk around oblivious.
1: And trashing.
0: And, 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 and it's almost like there's a, there's a, there's a, a gracious lady standing on the street with fruit and ointments and shawls and even directions to the local youth hostel, you know. And we got up and hold a gun to her head and said, Give me your purse. <laughs> what are you doing? What are you doing? But that's what we're doing. Yeah.
1: Awkward oh, silence. <laughs>
0: Well, I don't know. Like in Finland, they have this amazing thing of that silence doesn't bother them. We were told before we went out there, and we ended up um, with with our host in Finland. We'd, we had a, we'd, we'd rented a, a little island with a hut on it, but we had to go and see our host to charge our mobile phones. I hate to have to admit, um, and we just stood there looking out on the on the um, on the lake. And sure enough, this guy just was completely quiet, and it went on for two minutes, three minutes, five minutes, and we just thought we're just going to hang on there because the book says just, they're not phased by it, don't you be fazed, and we just thought we'll just see how long this will go, and after about five minutes went, and, uh, and just started talking about something, but it hadn't bothered him, um, well in Finland they have, they have silences on telly, it's extraordinary, yes. there'll be people having a discussion people are just going
2: hmm.
0: and everyone's just going
2: hmm.
0: and after a very long silence someone will say what they've been thinking in the space of the hmm. i'm not sure we have the nerve to have a long hmm on a podcast we'll have to see i know
1: because when you can only hold people's <laughs> attention for a three minute video <laughs> What on earth is a 30-second ah, silence going to do? Ah, but the beauty of
0: it is podcasts are not appealing to that audience. Podcasts are not appealing to people with short attention spans. They're appealing to people on long car journeys and mm. people who are doing the washing up and just quite happy for us to witter on or have a long pause. So, yeah, yes. so I was
1: taught a very valuable lesson on silence by a friend of mine from my childhood, Simon. And we were driving through the southern reaches of Zimbabwe going down to Goneray Zoo, which was a reserve that was closed when the war with Mozambique was going on. That's a real, true wilderness there, and we're driving through this long, long flat landscape, you know, a little bit like being on Route 66 in the States or something, and I'm burbling away and chattering away, and he turned to me and he said, you know, we don't have to talk all the time, it's okay, and it was such a relief. Oh, thank goodness for that! (laughs) Spent the rest of the journey in silence, just enjoying it. So I've been quite good at silence since then. I've been practising my ability to be silent. (laughs) Thank you, Simon. So one of the critical things about still being able to take kids out Mm. and to let children have these experiences is still being able to have access to the land, to do foraging. Right, right. And I've noticed quite a big difference between England and Scotland in this way. In In terms of land access, in terms of land access, and in terms of the owners of land understanding the importance of it. And it's almost, in some ways, emblematic of what happened in um, in many parts of the world with indigenous communities Mm. who had a respect for the land and a sense of give and take with the land. They knew that it was their duty. To look after the land that gave them so much whereas when people came in to conquer and take and own the lands then they became very suspicious of anybody else on their land mm. and um, you know in Scotland the people that we work with people like SNH and um, Scotland,
0: no, S- Scottish, National Scottish Heritage. Natural Heritage
1: yeah. um, Scottish Natural Trust and other organizations like that because we have um, possibly more of an outdoor culture, or just a different culture up there. Um, you know, they realise that teaching foraging isn't about you know raping the forest of mushrooms and just taking all the resources for yourself. It's actually about inspiring people who, once they develop a love of nature, become the stewards. Yeah. You know, that's where ecology um, is really important. And I mean, you'll see that in, in overseas programs, um, you know, where you want wildlife um, trust to be successful in areas where there's been high poaching, if you actually give the villagers and the people yeah. a part to play in that, yeah. and make them proud of the wildlife that they have, um, allow them to be part of it, you have far more successful programs than if you just try and exclude all humans.
0: Well, it's, it's, even, it's even the same on the Isle of Mull with the, with the sea eagle reintroduction program. Once they, once they got the locals involved in, um, in, um, like ecotourism and, and, and they saw that people were coming here to see the Eagles and, and all of a sudden you had people watching the nests. Whereas prior to that, the egg collectors would come and just nick the eggs every time. It was just hopeless.
1: Mm. Well, certainly, you know, if you, if you take people out and give them a love of the land, Mm. they're going to be your best stewards. Mm. You know, they'll be the ones who take a carry bag with them and pick up the litter. They return to the same spots year after year after year because the same plants and the same fungi will come back and when they return to those spots they you know they care for those spots they can record at those spots they'll notice the diversity disappearing in those spots yeah um, they'll also <coughs> notice when habitat destruction does occur and that's nearly always because the habit you know the habitat is destroyed and that's what affects the yields or the harvest or the bioavailability of a particular species um, you know down in the south here there seems to be a far more um, difficult relationship yeah where um, you know interest communities you know for instance around birds or other things will work quite hard to exclude humans from the land or from participating there and people have this real suspicion in some areas of foraging as if it's just about you know, t- taking for selfish reasons, or commercial interest, or you know, why should a particular group of people have things for free, um, obviously don't realise how much work does go into you know, foraging and getting out there and collecting. Well I, I think, think it's... If you, know, if you can't connect children, and if the land is taken away that you can't connect children, mm. and you can't teach people, then you know, we've lost one of the most important ways of
0: well like i said i think it's, it's it's going back to the thing of of seeing that the problem is the disconnect between people in the landscape because you know if you're a wildlife trust or an RS, rspb or natural england or whatever um and you're just looking at plant populations or bird populations and, and and like where we kind of run this nature reserve for the benefit of this or that or or even a particular. Um, you know, kind of ecology that would support a variety of things. Um, if we don't recognise that the reason why these populations have declined in the first place is because people and land have been disconnected. You see, I think that's where you just don't, you don't, you don't join it up until you see that. Um, because then you, you couldn't possibly perceive it as a threat when an activity is fundamentally reconnecting people and doing all of the things that you've, you've talked about so eloquently there, that, that people um, will care once they're reconnected, quite simply. Uh, and, 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 and also seeing that the ongoing devastation. It's all very well cordoning off a piece of land and saying, well, this is going to be a nature reserve, so we, it's safe now, as the ISPB say, giving nature a home, which I just think it's an extraordinary thing to say, giving nature a home. You know, the biosphere is nature, it is home. I mean, it, it, I don't even know where to, know where to begin with that statement and how wrong it is. But it's just it's just like okay, well we can just raise these funds to create this bit here where nature can live. And meanwhile we're over here and nature can't live here. And 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 um meanwhile, you know, everybody that goes to the bird reserve probably doesn't eat organic food and all of that stuff that's being grown and and eaten is spewing out poison to kill all the other Biodiversity, but we we don't worry about that. We just think as long as we've got this little bit over here that's got this iconic status, mm-hmm. um, we 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 we, we um, fail to address the root of the problem. That's kind of what I'm trying to say. Until until we see that, look, there's a there's a broken wire here. I mean, I hate to use a a non-organic metaphor, but it'll do. And and until these bits of wire are reconnected, we're not going to have a signal traveling along and and the lights are not going to go on. I mean, mm-hmm. It's as simple as that. You can, you can argue all you like about the bloke that's stamping on the light bulb up there, but, um, and that probably is causing the problem, but actually, unless we just get the, the mains electricity sorted out the, these localized problems, you, you're not going to f- fix it. And, and, and it's basically the, 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 the archery of the biosphere has been cut, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and we are, we are bleeding the, the you know, it's bleeding to death uh but that archery that's cut is human beings not being connected to landscapes and and i i just feel like having isolated that as the problem we are kind of in introducing people to um land through 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 food i mean You know, perhaps it's just because we're focused on it that it seems like the most important thing. But I honestly do think it is the most important Mm. thing. I
1: I think also food is good because, you know, when you put something in your mouth, um, you know, it's a very intimate act with the rest of your body. And most people, you know, most people's concerns will be, you know, is it clean? Is it free from disease? Is it safe for me to put inside my body? Alright, so they're putting a value on that. Now, it's very interesting what you're saying. About you know people who will eat non-organic food that's been treated with herbicides and pesticides, but still have a deep love of bird life. Mm. You know when you know British um, insects and what you know wildlife that depend on insects have vanished. E.g. birds. E.g. E. birds. Yeah. 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 Right? Yeah. And that is that you know when people aren't connected, they fail to see through to make the, the consequences of yeah. any of their actions and it's
0: um... but, but it's also their experience of nature as I alluded to earlier I know you stuck up for standing there and looking at the view but um, you know it is essentially voyeuristic we're not participating we don't have any life connection to those birds that we go and see through our binoculars from that bird eye you know we just maybe give a fiver to the RSPB every month or a bit more or but we don't actually have any involvement in those creatures We're just watching planet earth on the telly which is even worse it's just, just yeah it's it's
1: but people have to think through the consequences of every action and you know this is particularly important for every consumer action as well you know every little thing you know if you buy something that's got plastic on it where's that plastic going to go hmm. you know is it going to end up as microbeads in the deep sea fish that are then you know being served up on a plate to your child yeah. you know if you decide to have a party night out and you know, put on a little bit of glitter, you know, or buy somebody, uh, you know, Christmas wrapping paper covered in glitter. You know, where does that glitter go? It doesn't break down. Um, you know, it's only when you're actually physically out in nature and you walk along a beautiful beach and you see the amount of plastic and debris on it, you know, or you go out foraging and you notice how the car park is just full of trash and, I mean, People dump the most amazing stuff. You know, you can go to this beautiful wood next to the beach, and if you go on a Monday after a nice sunny weekend, there's babies' nappies and mm. throwaway barbecues, and you know, it's just like the world has. You know, they've gone to all the trouble to carry the heavy litter with them, but the lightweight litter that they finished with, you know, it's just trashed. Um, everything, you know, that um, you know destroys the environment goes back to a lack of feeling truly connected.
0: Hmm.
1: Because otherwise we wouldn't behave as humans, how we behave.
0: Well, and and also because everything is so, um, so almost comprehensively mediated. So all of these packets, they're basically a sign of the fact that we didn't gather that food, we didn't prepare that food, we didn't you know, so you, you have to have it in a packet then.
1: We didn't meet the farmer and shake his hand. And well.
0: it wasn't made now. Because if it was made now, you could just eat it, couldn't it? Mm-hmm. So it, you? So know, it was made somewhere else to be shifted around and, you know, all of those...
1: Flown in of season. Yeah.
0: Whereas all of those things in the past, anything you need was an opportunity for contact and, and engagement. I, you know, I need some furniture. Right? I need to go and cut some wood do that, I need some eggs, need to find some wild birds or go and look at my chickens or even if if there was a need for a bit of mediation it would be with the friendly egg guy next door who I'm going to do some kind of bartering with but but the whole thing was relational whenever I need something there's an opportunity to be with and engaged and present and and there there to be some kind of flow of exchange now when I need something I'm going to have a packet and I'm going to give some money and It's, it's, so yeah, we, we, we we strip it right right back down, it, it's, it's just observing the way that birds and foxes and earthworms and so on, they're, they're just in direct contact and in, in that flow of matter and that, that is ecology and, and the biosphere. Uh, yeah, and we just need to be more like worms really, and squirrels and hatches and so on.
1: And think it through. There was a couple on the per- plane when I was coming back, got started chatting in quite loud voices, I couldn't help overhearing, and he did some work in some Amazon warehouses, and the old lady he was speaking to started praising Amazon, saying what a wonderful service it was. and. So on and so forth, and they both agreed that you know Alison was pretty incredible, and then they started talking about food a little later on, and started saying you know that they both tried to shop local, um, you know, like buying food local and tried to shop local. And I thought, you know, if somebody else recorded this conversation with different voices and played back to you, would you see the anomaly mm. between, at one hand, loving something which um, you know has so radically changed. Um, the retail scene, that shopping local can become very, very hard in some places, because shops and local businesses have failed to thrive because they can't compete with the online behemoth. Mm. And the fact that you're also espousing shopping local, you know, people don't see the contradictions with their own, with their own actions. Mm. And, um, you know, it was interesting when we had the Beast from the East, where the little shops in some of the smaller towns and villages quickly ran out of bread and milk wow. and people yeah. suddenly started to think about you know, where their food was coming from and bemoan the loss of you know, the village bakery that had disappeared and the fact we don't have you know, butchers and local stores anymore where things are happening locally and that you're relying on a distribution system from supermarkets where, after three days, Which they have been restocking a, yeah. on a daily basis.
0: It's actually incredibly it is, fragile, right?
1: Well, you know, imagine if somebody, you know, took out big chunks of the national grid or something, um, and all those computer stock systems and distribution systems went down. You know, just took out the electricity. I mean, there's a disruptive part of me that would be really interested to see that happen, actually. I mean, I don't wish, of course I don't wish, the suffering that that would entail for a lot of people. But sometimes when you speak But well, you people, would
0: wish the waking up that would happen for a lot of people. I wish for the waking up.
1: Yeah. I wish for that big penny dropping. For anyone who
0: remembers what a penny was. <laughs> Should we run against decimalisation now? <laughs> <laughs> We've had go everything else.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, we, we need to reconnect and be thankful. Appreciative because without that, we're just in training to survive a long electronic journey to some other planet. There'll just be a few people who go. Oh, what a doom gloom person I've become.
0: Well, I'm still wanting to say, like, without to take the doom away, you know, because we need that to we need that penny to drop, you know. Like, there's there's doom, folks, um, and it's just around the corner if if we don't restore vital connection, basically. But I, I just want to say for the, for the, for the, for the chime of hope alongside that, um, it's definitely the kids.
1: I think it's, it so it's definitely the kids. One us. Yeah. If every single person on this planet really took responsible for their behavior yeah. and the knock on causes of it and made well, those consumer decisions, um, the world could still be revolutionized,
0: and we can't but, wait for this yeah. the Soviet leaders to do it for no. us. No, we can't. So, well, I'm going to say it's the kids, right? But, but yeah, I, I agree. It's everyone. And, and, you know, we've both been describing what happens when the uh, estranged lovers are reunited, you know, like when people touch land and then just realize, wow, how wonderful. This is where I belong. And, and that, that chemistry is um, reignited. So that's what we're after. Because if we could only get the two bits of the wire to join up again, and get that power crackling down the line, and people just thinking, I'm part of this. Mm. I, have to, I have to look to, to, to nurture this because it nurtures me. I have to sustain this because it sustains me. To to not care for this is to not care for myself. Mm. Like your own body. You don't sit there going, I don't give a shit about it. You know, I don't care about my knees. Well I care about my knees. Stupid knees have not, nothing to do with me, is it? You wouldn't do that. But when we realise we're part of this, then it's like caring for your knees. So mm. So as the kids and as getting the estranged lovers back together. So that yeah, we could under those circumstances, we could see a prospect of turning things around, I think.
1: And that's why the vital yeah. is between restoring connection.
0: So because it's it is restoring, it is broken, and it's vital to restore vital connection.
1: Because vital means life, yeah. life-giving.
0: Yeah. And it also means vitals as in food, right? I remember we talked about this after that meeting. Yeah. You pointed out the vitals were, were, um, yeah, foodstuffs, yeah.
1: And the vital signs that show us that we are alive, the pulse. Okay,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: The light in someone's eyes. I was staying in the Gila Wilderness and it was founded, it's one of the oldest reserves founded. And it was one of the, um, a guy who was shooting, he shot a wolf and he saw the green life light in its eyes go out. And that's when he became a conservationist. The vital signs
2: have
0: gone. So thanks for listening to this week's episode of the World Wild Podcast. Once again, if you could like us and leave us a good review on iTunes or whatever uh, medium you use into contact um, and tap into this podcast that we'd really appreciate that uh, the more you like us and send good reviews the more our profile will rise up um, and more people will be able to find us and uh, engage with this material and also do consider becoming a patron through our patreon page um, just for a couple of pounds a couple of dollars a month if we can get enough people supporting us in that way we'll have more um human resource in other words be able to pay folk to um do the background work to the podcast and just get more um more of this kind of material out so if, if you like the material and believe in it do consider um, supporting us in that way so that's uh, that's it for this week